Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Banks. They're supposed to be boring, but lately they've been anything but. The collapse of the U.S.-based Silicon Valley Bank. Anatomy of a collapse of a big bank. El Silicon Valley Bank colapsó y se trata de la California regulator shut down Silicon Valley Bank, a big lender out in California. California's Silicon Valley Bank, SVB, a bank I'm willing to bet most outside of the tech world had never heard of before it went belly up. And then came the fallout. Because if there's one thing about bank collapses... It's that they have ripple effects across the financial industry. The troubled global banking sector. The banking fallout continues as the American government tries to orchestrate a rescue of First Republic Bank with the aid of a major sell-off of shares in the Swiss banking giant Credit Suisse. The Swiss bank has seen its shares tumble this week with billions of dollars wiped off its market value. A historic moment for Credit Suisse and for global finance. Welcome to Money Clinic, the weekly podcast from the Financial Times about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, the FT's consumer editor. The wild ride in bank shares that we've been seeing recently is down to rising interest rates. Central banks have been fighting inflation by putting up key rates, but those increases have happened very quickly, and that's put some financial institutions under stress. It means central banks now face a dilemma. How can they keep up the fight against inflation without causing more financial turmoil? So in this episode, we're asking, what's next for interest rates? How worried should we be about the stability of the global financial system? And of course, what does it all mean for your investments? I spoke to Money Clinic regular, the FT's markets editor, Katie Martin, and down the line from New York, the FT's financial reporter and author of the unhedged newsletter, Ethan Wu. Now, we recorded this episode at the end of last week, before the UBS takeover of Credit Suisse had been finalised. But the themes of this episode relating to investing and your money still stand. I started by asking Ethan to give us a brief rundown of what happened with SVB. Well, do you want the the short story or or the long story? Start with the (laughs) short one. (laughs) <laughs> well, the, the short one is that, you know, a bank has two sides. Money goes in and money goes out. And in this case, SVB, the money went out from both ends. That's the short story. Uh, the, the long story has to do with, with interest rates. And so, you know, the, the main thing to understand about SVB is the S and the V, Silicon Valley, right? It's taking deposits from Silicon Valley startups. So they have all of this cash from uh, these companies that got this influx of money. 
those companies are highly interest rate sensitive. They have funding because interest rates are at zero because Mm. the Federal Reserve, the Central Bank of the U.S., uh, lowered rates to stimulate the economy after the pandemic. Uh, So that's on on the money coming in side. On the other side of of the bank, you know, a bank is a lot of money. You got to put it somewhere. Most banks usually like to lend that out, right? That's the the main business they're in. But in the case of SVB, they got so much money so quickly that they decided, you know what? We're going to do something prudent, safe, conservative. We're going to put it in U.S. government bonds, the safest stuff there is. The one problem with that plan is that U.S. government bonds are also highly interest rate sensitive. When interest rates go up, the price of the bond goes down. So what you had in the last year or so is interest rates in the U.S. going up the fastest they've gone up in decades. So SVB got pinched on both sides. It's depositors, all these tech firms who had all this money from the era of low interest rates. They started saying, ooh, it's looking tough out there. We're going to need to you know, start withdrawing our money. On the other side, all the bonds SVB had, they were rapidly losing value. Uh, And so we got in a situation where people started getting concerned in Silicon Valley. Hey, are they going to be able to pay us back given what's happening to the bond side of their portfolio? And, you know, add one more thing into this, which is all of the people in Silicon Valley are in the same group chats. They're all talking to one another. They're all reading the same sub stacks. They're all reading Twitter. They all got panicked uh, in a herd and they ran for the door and it was too late for SVB. Yeah. I mean, and the, the speed that it unraveled was just absolutely phenomenal. Well. Katie, we've survived um, the last seven days or so of reporting on this story. So far. So far. (laughs) There's been a lot of ups and downs, but tell us briefly what the market reaction has been to all of this. Yeah, it's been pretty spectacular. I mean, at first, you know, SVB started to look like it was in the death throes and all of the investors that we spoke to on this side of the pond were saying, don't worry, don't panic, this is just some little bank in the States. It's got very specific problems. It's got itself in quite the tangle over here because, as Ethan says, it was getting hit on both sides. This is not systemic. There's nothing to worry about here. Um, And then a couple of days later, suddenly the market decided there was something to worry about here. And it, it accelerated pretty quickly. One thing was that regional bank stocks in the States, first of all, just got hosed. They, they had a really hard time because people were thinking, well, which bank is next? Where is this mm. going to go next? The thing that had a bigger impact for portfolios for everybody else was that the market decided, huh, we've always known that if the Fed slams on the brakes and starts jacking up interest rates, something's going to go through the windshield. Here's the thing that's going through the windshield. It's the US banking system. You know, panic. So... U.S. government bonds, which are kind of supposed to be the safe place where you can go, the sort of safe hidey hole for investors, they rocketed higher. Firstly, because people were looking for safety. Also, because people were saying, huh, I don't think the Fed can keep on hiking Mm. quite as aggressively as it has been doing over the past year anymore. And so suddenly you had bond prices picking up. Now, the problem there is that pretty much every hedge fund on the street has been massively betting against government bonds because they made a fortune last year out of betting that the Fed would raise rates. And they thought in 2023, what's changed? We're going to keep that bet on. So it took a fairly small move in the opposite direction for this to accelerate incredibly quickly. Suddenly, we ended up with the biggest rally in US government bonds since 1987. Like, if you look at the bond market alone, it tells you this past couple of weeks has been worse than 08, worse than March 2020, 
just a kind of generationally terrible week in the markets. Now, I think that's exaggerated on the bond market side. The the stock market will tell you that it hasn't been quite Mm. so bad, but it has been a really violent move. And Claire, just to add on to to Katie's very comprehensive answer, I think when we talk about government bonds being safe, you know, that word kind of obscures a a distinction that I think people are, are, you know, learning really matters here. So one type of risk you want to be safe from is credit risk. That's the risk Mm. that people default, that you're holding the bond, the debt of a company or a government or whatever that goes under. Government bonds are entirely safe from that type of risk. You know, uh, historically speaking, developed countries, they just don't default. It doesn't happen. Uh, There's another type of risk, which is interest rate risk. Now, this is not your bond goes to zero. This is your bond loses 20 to 30 percent of its value because rates have gone up really fast. Now, that's in some ways less catastrophic because it's not going to zero. So people have, I I think, not thought as much about, you know, interest rate risk as, you know, a major threat to bonds, at least sort of maybe in the popular consciousness of, of government bonds being the safe place to go. But but when we talk about safe, we're talking about safe from default, not safe from losses on, on the value of the bond. A very, very good point. And it wasn't just SVB that has had problems in the past week. It's also been very dramatic um, over on the European banking scene. I mean, Credit Suisse, lots of drama there, as well as other bank stocks around the world. Yeah. Um, and I, I think part of the, you know, quote unquote contagion, the jumping of distress from SVB to Credit Suisse and, and First Republic in the US and, all, you know, various other banks in the US and Europe is that, you know, people have been asking, what's the link here? I think there's something to be said about, you know, fear when it takes over markets, it is an incredibly powerful force. And it doesn't need a rationale. If you're scared, you're scared, right? And which isn't to say that Credit Suisse doesn't have problems. Uh, but Credit Suisse did not have the same problem that SVB did, right? SVB had this kind of, again, dual interest rate sensitivity on both sides of the bank. Credit Suisse was just kind of a poorly run business that had, you know, a bunch of scandals in in the last couple of years. Uh, But what they share in common, right, is management incompetence leading to worsening profits. And then in a a climate of fear, when everyone's scared of, you know, are people going to start withdrawing? Am I going to get my money back? Those profitability concerns can can morph through the prism of fear into something more existential for the banks. Mm. And certainly there have been some weird and unexpected movements elsewhere on the markets. The price of Bitcoin actually surged 30% last week. I mean, Katie, what's all that about? I mean, <laughs> What is that about? <laughs> you tell me, Claire. I mean, the thing is with, with the crypto crowd is that if Bitcoin is up, one week they're telling you that's because it's a flight to safety. The next week they're telling you it's because people <laughs> are looking for a new speculative asset. The next time they're telling you it's because they want an alternative to the dollar brackets, question mark. So why is it up? I don't really know. But I do know that had SVB been allowed to fail in the sense that its depositors had been left with nothing, or they'd only been left as much as the federal insurance covers them for, then the crypto industry would have been in a lot of trouble because there's this thing called a stable coin, which is supposedly pegged one for one with the dollar, which is run by a company called Circle. It had a cool $3.3 billion on deposit with SVB, and you're only insured up to 250 k Now, as it turns out, the regulatory response to all this and the rescue package that they came out with said that, OK, all the depositors are made whole. Don't mm. worry, you can get your money back. And they were very fast to, to They were that. super fast to do that. Um, but there's a very real sense in which 
the the authorities in the states have have stepped in and bailed out the crypto market here, which I mean, beats me. Mm. And I mean, certainly in the UK, there are just over three thousand UK fast growing tech companies, mostly who did bank with the UK arm of SVB. And that was taken over very rapidly by HSBC. Yes, HSBC paid a whole pound for that business. Um, so it, it, that, again, is effectively a rescue. And, and again, it's a bit of a lesson in, does it make sense for banks to be heavily concentrated on one industry? Or does it make more sense for them to be more of a full-service bank like HSBC, where you can just spread that risk around so that if the tech industry hits a wall, it doesn't take the bank down with it, if you can cope with my tangled analogy there. Okay, well, this story obviously continues to run and run. So keep up with FT.com for the latest. Let's just pause for breath a minute now, Casey and Ethan, and let's talk now about what all of this is potentially going to do to the future direction of interest rates. Now, listeners will know that raising rates is the main tool that central banks around the world have to fight inflation, but they're walking a tightrope. If they raise rates too far too fast, there's a risk that economies could be plunged into recession. And of course, there's all of these hidden risks that are potentially buried in bank balance sheets um, that could emerge. Now, it's easy to understand why interest rates matter on financial products like savings accounts. But Ethan, why do they matter so much to retail investors and the value of the investments that we hold in our portfolios? Hmm. Yeah, so uh, interest rates matter for basically every investing asset out there. And, and that's because, you know, interest rates, I think, are best thought of as as the price of money, um, which means, you know, uh, basically every asset, when you, if you're a financial professional, you got your spreadsheet out, and you're deciding how much you want to pay for a stock, a, a key input into your valuation of a stock or a bond or, or whatever it is, is going to be what the prevailing interest rate is, what you can get. Uh, you know, the return you can get on your money for no risk at all. Um, like if I can get 4% in my cash ISA, why would I risk it investing in something that I think is going to potentially yield me less than that? Exactly. Yeah. No, uh, when when rates are high, equities better return quite a bit more or what's the point, you know? So in general, when interest rates rise, stocks tend to do poorly. That's not necessarily an iron law, and, and, and there's you know plenty of wiggle room and, and variation around that, but that's kind of a general relationship. You know, in, in the past year, it's been quite bad for stocks and for bonds. It's been a, you know, a really perilous investing climate for both retail investors and for the professionals. But I think now that interest rate increases are starting to level off, inflation, uh, you know, hasn't been dealt with yet, but there are some hopeful signs that one might be optimistic about. I think that there's a climate for savers where you can put your money away in a certificate of deposit uh, for a year or two if you need short-term access to your funds. Get 4.5% risk-free. Don't bother about, is there going to be a recession and will that hurt my equity portfolio? Of course, if you're a longer-term investor, the best thing to do is almost always to buy and hold stocks for, for long periods of time. Right now is a, is a decent entry point in uh, global equities. They're cheap by historical standards. U.S. equities, a little bit less so. Those are a little a little more expensive than historical standards. You know, if you're a, a recent graduate or, or just getting into investing, it's not the worst time to, to buy equities for the long run either. No, and we always encourage people to to take a long-term view, as regular listeners will know. Now, Katie, how else could rising interest rates impact our personal finances? I suppose the big question for lots of us sitting here who are lucky enough to own our own homes is what it will do to mortgage rates. 
I've got one year until I renew my mortgage and I'm really hoping this whole thing blows over (laughs) by then. Otherwise, I'm going to be paying through the nose. Yeah, I mean, Brits in particular are very sensitive to this stuff because our mortgages roll over every couple of years as Mm -hmm. a rule and the interest rate can kick up like pretty severely in, in that period. So there's a lot of people now who are rolling over mortgages that they've been paying reasonably happily without too much difficulty for a really long time that suddenly is getting some real sticker shock in terms of the the, the price of, of renewing that debt. So that's probably the main channel for Brits at the moment. The cost of borrowing has gone up enormously, whether that is for a home or whether it is just any other standard loan. So a lot is hinging on central bank's ability to get inflation down and, and you know, th- these are the trade-offs. You know, there are going to be fragilities in, in the financial system. There are going to be things that go wrong if they've been hinging absolutely on interest rates staying low forever. Um, so central banks have got to tread that line. Mm. Ethan, we've got some key events coming up, haven't we, this week? Um, the Fed meeting um, to decide interest rates. So, I mean, even quite recently, I think the FT's front page splash on the 8th of March was um, that the Fed was going to go harder um, and raise interest rates um, further than the market was anticipating. I mean, so much changes in so few days. It does. I did think what was interesting recently was the European Central Bank uh, did stick with raising rates by half a percentage point, which I think tells us something. It tells us that central banks really are committed to stamping out inflation with interest rate hikes. Now, I, you know, part of the reporting on that ECB decision was that the bank was considering either half a percentage point or nothing at all. There was no consideration of slowing down. It's either we're going to pause to see how the financial system is doing uh, or we're going to you know, stick on our campaign against inflation. Uh, obviously, the stress in the financial sector complicates the picture for the banks. They now have to balance you know, two risks that kind of point in opposite directions, right? One being financial stability. Uh, you know, one being combating inflation. Now, I I think the UK example from last year, uh, the guilds market crisis that the Bank of England Mm. uh, had to to stamp out. Yes, of course. You're talking about what happened after the disastrous mini budget where Liz Truss said that she was going to borrow huge sums of money for um, completely unfunded tax cuts and investors around the world were completely spooked and the cost of UK government borrowing went up because people thought Britain was much more risky. And that completely repriced government bonds known as gilts and caused all kinds of issues everywhere from the stock market to the health of pension funds, a complete disaster. Uh, Yeah, that's right. Uh, Gilts being UK government bonds, uh, just like in the US, supposed to be the safest sort of debt uh, in the UK. What happened in that situation was the Bank of England, it took a little break, a couple of weeks, maybe a month from tightening monetary policy to deal with the eruptions in the gilt market. And it was successful because it has basically unlimited firepower to deal with financial market turmoil. Once it stamped that out, it pivoted back and said, hey, guys, we're going back to our inflation fighting campaign. You know, I think the ECB and the Fed are going to be looking at the Bank of England's example of being able to separate the tools of financial stability and monetary policy. Uh, financial stability is a near-term concern. You don't have to, you know, deal with it forever. You have to deal with it in episodic periods when people get stressed out. And fighting inflation can be kind of a longer-term priority that can be combated over time, even if you have to take these, you know, momentary breaks. But 
if things calm down, I would expect the central banks to go right back to uh, raising rates because fundamentally, they have not won the inflation battle yet. Ethan's absolutely right. And the really difficult thing for monetary policymakers now, for, you know, the, the bigwigs sitting in central banks is they mustn't look frightened. If, you know, for example, had the European Central Bank said, look, we're not going to do a half percentage point rate rise as we had indicated that we would, we're going to go smaller or we're going to do nothing at all, then the market would have thought, huh, well, if they're worried about the European banking system, then maybe I should be more worried about Mm. the European banking system. And so there's going to be a very difficult communication job now where it's been it's been difficult from the start that central banks don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. They don't want to break the system while they try and fix inflation. But at the same time, they really have to manage expectations and not look like they're spooked. Otherwise, this whole situation will get worse. So I really don't envy them. I, I would be surprised if the Bank of England manages to get away with the next rate setting meeting on the 23rd without being forced to say something about this whole situation. Thankfully, at the moment, UK banks are not in the firing line of this. And if we could all just keep it that way, then that would really help my stress levels. <laughs> it certainly would, wouldn't it? But, but Ethan, what the Fed decides on interest rates, that really matters whether you're an investor sitting in the US, in the UK or, or even India, for example. It's the most watched market. Uh, Yeah, that's right. No, canonically, the Fed sets the tempo for interest rates all across the world. Uh, But I I think something important to to say there is that the Fed tends not to make interest rate policy consciously for the rest of the world. They make it for the U.S., right? Mm -hmm. These are U.S. policymakers. They're accountable to Congress. Uh, they talk to international central banks, but that's not really their their key constituency. So I I, I think you know in, just like it's it's been almost the entire interest rate cycle, uh, the Fed's going to be making decisions based on U.S. inflation, U.S. financial stability, not necessarily European financial stability or you know balance of payment crises in the developing world. Uh, it, it, it makes its own decisions. Now I'm going to come to both of you um, to close. Obviously, this is a very fast moving story, but starting with you, Ethan. What will you be watching in the days and weeks to come? Hmm. Uh, one thing I've been watching is uh, funding stress. Essentially, you know, how much stress is out there? How much are banks having to borrow from the government to cover uh, liquidity needs, to cover, uh, you know, withdrawals from the bank? I'm on the lookout for if there's going to be another failure or if authorities have really stemmed the bleeding and contained the fallout. I am hopeful at this juncture I think there are reasons to think that we are not going to have a 2008 or even short of 2008 style meltdown, that this is a a temporary stress that can be smoothed out. Now, of course, as Katie referred to, when interest rates go up, things do tend to break. So in some ways, you know, it's not surprising and and, and we should expect more. But at least for now, in in the interim, I think that keep an eye on on the banking system, but I think there's not necessarily a reason to completely panic and sell everything and board up your home. Well, I'm relieved to hear that. And Katie, what will you be watching up for in the days and weeks to come? For what it's worth, I'm with Ethan on this. I'm not going out to buy guns and tinned food. I don't, I don't think, famous last words, I don't think this is an 08 situation. It's very difficult to see how it could be. So the thing I'm going to be really watching over the next few days is the government bond market to try and figure out how much of the move that we've seen over the past few days is an overreaction and how much of it is a realistic reflection of what central banks are likely to do next. Brilliant. Well, 
thank you so much to Casey Martin, the FT's markets editor, and Ethan Wu. You can sign up for the Unhedged newsletter that Ethan and another podcast favourite, Rob Armstrong, contribute to on FT.com. And of course, you can keep in touch with us at the FT Money team by emailing us money at FT.com if there are any questions that you want us to answer about what's going on in markets. And I have to say to both of you, I've learned so much from hearing you speak today. (laughs) Thank you for sharing your thoughts with us all. Thanks so much, Claire. You're welcome. Come back again soon. That's it for Money Clinic with me, Claire Barrett, this week. And we hope you like what you've heard. If you did, spread the word and leave us a review. We're always looking to chat with people about their money issues for the show. If you're interested in being part of a future episode and are looking for some expert money advice, then email us money at ft.com. You could also take a peek at our website, ft.com slash money, grab a copy of the FT Weekend newspaper or follow me on Instagram. I'm at Claire B. Money Clinic was produced in London by Persis Love. Our sound engineer is Breen Turner and our editor is Manuela Saragossa. You heard original tunes this week by Metaphor Music. And finally, our usual disclaimer, the Money Clinic podcast is a general discussion around financial topics and does not constitute an investment recommendation or individual financial advice. For that, you'll need to find an independent financial advisor. That's all the small print for now. See you back here next week. Goodbye. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.